Welcome to Talking With Tech. I'm your host, Rachel Mano, joined as always by Chris Bougay. Hey, Chris. Hey, Rachel. So guess what I got to do today? Tell me more. So you've probably heard that in the United States, we are in the midst of a teacher and sub shortage as teachers are getting sick with COVID and beyond just the typical illness and other stuff that goes on. Uh, that, that means they request a substitute. And because there have been so many getting sick, the substitutes have been out sick. Uh, and so that has created this sub shortage and then beyond that, um, I've always said that one of the biggest issues facing AAC and education in general is the lack of people that are coming into the field, right? Um, or the high turnover rate, you know? So someone might, might be working as a teacher, especially in special education, for a handful of years, and then they say, well, I'm going to go over to general ed. But even, even in general ed, no, there's not a lot of people coming into the field uh, of being a teacher, and people are leaving at a faster rate than you can fill it, fill that in. So with that happening, um, plus the pandemic and people being sick, there has been a huge teacher slash substitute shortage across the country. And our, my district, the district that I work with, has not been exempt from that. We have been feeling that just as much as everyone else. So one strategy that many places have come to is that including my school district has said it's all hands on deck being substitutes so if you're an administrator come sub uh, wherever you can and so that is brings me to my experience today is that I was actually a substitute teacher today um, now the truth is I, I yes I filled in as a substitute teacher but I wasn't like um, where, where I got to go was a high school as a team teacher. So a team taught classroom, in case you're a, a, someone who's not familiar, is that it's a classroom that has two teachers. So typically there's a general ed teacher and a special ed teacher, um, and uh, there's different uh, models for co-teaching, uh, but the, the ones that... Um, I think are most predominantly used are the ones where it's just like your two teachers you plan together you do sort of everything together in the same way that you and I um, work on this podcast together and it's a true 50-50 partnership that's how a lot of co-teaching works um, but so I was in a, two different English classes today um, being a and again I'll put it in quotes sub because it turns out like the, the classroom was just sort of rolling. The teachers and the students knew what to do. Um, but I wanted to kind of reflect a few minutes, if, if it's okay with you, on what, uh, what that experience was like. Let's go there, because I have no idea what it would be like to be a substitute teacher, so I'm curious. So this was an English uh, high school, um, 10th grade, two different 10th grade classrooms. Um, and I think the first thing that you might recognize is like when I walked into the room, the room was just rows of desks and they, it's, the, it's a one size fits all model where everyone, no matter if you're the tallest kid or the shortest kid or whatever your body type is, it doesn't matter, you get the same desk as everybody else, um, which are hard and uncomfortable, right? And that was the first thing I noticed even before the kids came in. Like I, I was there maybe three or four minutes early, the room was dark, I was, uh, it was an English room, so that I was reading all the kind of uh, the quotes up on the walls and things like that. But it was my first thought, and of course, I, you, you might remember this, but several years ago I was, 
um, the co-chair of a task force on flexible learning spaces, where we were trying to bring more flexible learning spaces to um, every educational environment. And it, it just really, again, screamed to me how slowly education changes here. Like, like we're pretty confident that sitting in desks for 90 minutes that are one size fits all is not conducive to a good uh, learning experience. And so I was just immediately challenged with, man, how do we change this, right? How do we change it so it's not a one size fits all? And the room did allow for, uh, or did not allow for a lot of space, but the attitude of the teacher, when I got to talking with the teacher, when the teacher came in, you could totally tell this teacher would be all about flexible seating, where you have different sized desks, um, and you have tables, and you have beanbag chairs. If, if it was presented to her as an option, she would have totally loved that. So, um, and I think about that when it comes from an AEC standpoint, right, is that there is no, we, we say it all the time, there's no one size fits all when it comes to um, the the environment, your, your device that you're using and the words that you're saying, the words might be similar, but the layout might be different. There might be one size fits most, but not one size fits all. And this is certainly the case beyond just AAC is my point of bringing it to the podcast. I have a question. Okay. Did you actually change the seating or was it just like there were no possible within like your time frame of just being there for one day as a substitute teacher, there wasn't much you could do? Not much I could do. And the the only thing you could really change with the size of this room is the configuration of the desks. Like at this point, you'd have desks that are filling up, you know, 80% of the free space in the room is columns of, of rows of desks, you know, uh, which if you just look at any contemporary uh, business or, you know, anyone that's working, you know that that, that sort of sitting in, sitting in general is bad. You want to have more movement than just just being uh, sedate all the time is my point. Um, but you don't want to just be sitting for 90 minutes listening to a teacher. Now, the teacher didn't do that, right? It wasn't a 90 minute lecture. Uh, she had it broken up into a number of uh, different chunks, right? Um, but that brings me sort of to the second reflection. And I think this has come up quite frequently recently in um, some of the Facebook groups that I'm in and some of the other professional learning groups I'm in, uh, where I see people post things about uh, a school has said that a student is having, and we've had this conversation many times on this podcast, even had a whole episode, uh, school has said we are limiting the amount of screen time a student is going to get, right? Um, and how does, what does that mean when it comes to someone who has an accommodation where they rely or need or prefer to have that, um, have that screen? AAC immediately comes to mind, right? Uh, like, sorry, you only get 20 minutes of screen time. We've got to pull your screen away. Yeah, but I use it for communication. You know, well, sorry, we have a rule. And I'm sort of shrugging my shoulders and saying that facetiously because I think all of our listeners would be like, of course that wouldn't count. Yet I'm seeing people post about it in Facebook groups because that's what certain places are absolutely doing is they're saying, yeah, no, we got to pull that communication device away because we're trying to limit screen time, <laughs> if you can imagine. My eyes are huge right now and shock and disgust. <laughs> now, again, that wasn't my experience today, subbing or in my school district, um, but I'm just saying that it, uh, I'm reading about it out there. Totally. So one of the reasons that came up is because 
uh, as the students filtered in, they were many of them were on their phones and they sat at their chairs and they were on their phones doing different things. Like um, one girl was playing a game, someone else was scrolling through pictures, and those were only the two students that are able to see, right? But um, the teacher then was like, all right, everybody, it's time to read, right? And so put your phones away and start to read. And that was another thing that immediately kind of jumped out at me is that I know for myself, I know many students, I know many people here in 2022 that read on their phones or they read on their mobile devices. It's not paper-based text anymore. It's digital text. So it sort of made me think like, well, I wonder if there would be like a little caveat here. You'd say, all right, guys, make sure you're all reading, right? Like, yeah, use your phones or you bring out your books, your paper-based books if you want. Um, but again, lead with this option and lead with the assumption that maybe students are reading. Like maybe that's that's the routine in the class as you come in, you bring out whatever your reading, reading material is. Maybe that's what you are doing on your phone. Like I don't, I can't say one way or another because I didn't look at every single student sitting in the class if that's exactly what they were doing. Like they were already reading, you know. I, 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 I certainly would have been, like I certainly would have been in the back of the room um, if I had not been a substitute this day trying to set a good example, whatever that means. Um, I, I would be back there reading on my phone, you know, that's certainly where I get my text. Well, what would you say to the skeptic that says, oh, they're just like sitting on Instagram or texting each other or not paying attention on their phones. That's why we wouldn't do something like that. Well, the first couple of things I would say is if you're on Instagram, chances are you are reading. <laughs> you're not just looking at the picture, but there's a bunch of uh, words or comments underneath, right? Uh, every story I've ever seen you post, Rachel, is not just a picture of you, right? There's always text involved in the stories, right? And every story I see from everyone else on Instagram is that there's usually text based there. So I feel like that is some reading happening, even if it's not like English class reading. Uh, you know what I mean? Like we're reading some sort of narrative, even though it's it's called a story. It's literally called Instagram stories, right? Um, so that's number one. Two, you said, what if they're texting their friends? That seems to be like literacy to me, right? Like you're texting people, you're generating sentences. What are you writing about, right? Um, uh, those are authentic tasks too, right? So it's not like, uh, and, and motivating. So um, my question, my, if a skeptic was like, yeah, but they're not doing their, and again, I'll put it in quotes, their work, right? Well, maybe this could be their work, right? How could we take that and make it functional as opposed to forcing, I'm going to use that's a strong word, but forcing them uh, or expecting them to learn about something that they have no interest in learning about. For instance, like, uh, again, I'm sure we have some Shakespeare fans out there. These kids did not seem to be Macbeth fans. Really? Yeah, right? Weird. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you can hear the sarcasm in my voice. <laughs> so there, there's some more reflections here, but I don't want to eat up the entire time. Maybe I'll come back and we'll reflect them on a, reflect more on them on a different banter. But sort of a, a, the the last point here is that so after this independent reading time, it was like now journal. Okay, so the kids bring out their journals, and it's a composition notebook, a marble composition notebook. You know what I mean by that? Like, it's got the marble cover. Oh, I know. I, like, remember that from my education experience growing up. <laughs> and that is, I guess, my. so do I. And I went to school in the 80s and the uh, early 90s, but mostly in the 80s. So here it is in 2022, and we're, we're, we have one 
one-to-one initiatives and we're breaking out our composition notebook. That screams to me a lack of evolution. Now, here's the thing. I'm not saying kids shouldn't write. I'm saying, look, if you want to write on paper, there you go. But you also have a Chromebook. And oh, by the way, if you want to record your voice or if you're working on a story that way or you want to outline something in using your computer or you want to outline something drawing it, or you want to do sketch noting? We had a whole episode back on sketch noting. You want to do do what you want to do, right? Um, use the modality that is your preference that works for you. But that certainly didn't. I didn't get that feeling here that it was like. Or if it was, it would be like one kid maybe would bring out their Chromebook, but then they would feel like I'm the only kid bringing out my Chromebook. And yeah, you, no one can see me, but you see me how I'm looking right. around skeptically like I'm in high school and I don't want to draw attention to myself, so I guess I'll struggle through this composition notebook, you know? And I think about, again, our AEC uh, users, like, well, they're using technology. Like, this is time to embrace the technology train for everybody. Also, to kind of reiterate that point, it feels probably like I'm doing something wrong if I pull out my Chromebook and try to utilize it in ways that can help my learning. And I think that, you know, same thing with kind of the cell phone example. It's like, how do we help educators create an environment that really embraces technology? Because we know that our students are already accessing technology, using technology. We know technology can be helpful, but I still feel like there's this this idea that if I pull out some type of device, I'm just playing on it and I'm not paying attention and you know I'm doing something wrong, uh, which is especially problematic for our kids who rely on assistive technology to learn. You know, so how can we create an environment where it's accepted and encouraged? Agreed. That is exactly what um, what I've been actually yelling and screaming from rooftops for years is like, uh, especially when mobile phones first came into school, it was like, put those things away. It's too distracting. It's like, hmm. No, they're going to have to learn how to use that in the future, and they're going to have to learn how to manage those distractions, right? So it's not just put them away. It's a, uh, it's teach me how to use it in a functional way, in a way that helps and supports my own learning, right? Um, yeah, I think that is exactly what I wanted to bring to the podcast, and it's exactly what I want, uh, I hope, that we can be advocates for everyone listening, is how we can be champions for this sort of technology and champions for choice about using this technology, not uh, an abatement, not like, let's put it away. It's a distraction. It's a, well, that's not teaching them anything to just say, authority says, put it away. You know, uh, all it teaches them is that, yeah, what the, the way I use, the way I learn and the technology that I use is not valued here. You know? Absolutely. I mean, we might be biased. We have a podcast called Talking With Tech. So, (laughs) but I think you bring up really important points, Chris. So one last point here to bring up, Rachel, and that is when we're talking about writing and writing and journaling, right? Um, There might be some people that says, well, well, I like to handwrite. Great. And other people like to type. Uh, And if you type, you might type for an authentic purpose. And if you're typing or writing for an authentic purpose, one great thing to be writing about, instead of like journaling, like, okay, it's it's independent writing time, write for for 15 minutes. Um, So I'm going to write on whatever sort of nebulous prompt might be 
be there. Like, tell us what you're going to do on your snow day. Like, no one wants to read it. No one cares, right? Um, so what's an actual authentic prompt might be to write a review for something that you really, truly enjoy. Like if you are writing a review for our podcast. I love that segue, Chris. <laughs> you really nailed it there. Segue, segue right into please leave us a review if you listen to this podcast. We get really excited to read the reviews and I'm really excited because we have two new reviews today, Chris. Can I read them to you? Absolutely. Okay, so the first one uh, is from Speech For Me. It says, this podcast is a weekly must listen to uh, to provide me with inspiration, creativity, and support. My students and staff have all benefited from the ideas Chris and Rachel provide. I love the podcast so much that I became a Patreon member. Awesome, awesome. Chances are that person did not write a draft of that by hand and then go type it in. They probably just typed it in. Well done, thank you. Exactly, so for you guys who are listening who are like Patreon, what's that that's our special section where we share behind the scenes podcast episodes resources tons of things if you're interested in learning more go to patreon.com backslash talking with tech okay one more review chris it's also uh it's a really good one because it's titled daily walks with you and my dogs <laughs> which i really really appreciate uh no voice left behind is who left this review and they say i listen to you every day while walking sam and shiloh they know your opening sounds and voices. This signals a good long walk is coming. I'm pumped and energized to work with my non-speaking clients after listening to you. I'm a former second and third grade teacher before going to graduate school at 45. I experienced having a non-speaking child with the big bulky Dynavox in 1998 to the explosion of iPads and apps in 2022. This person obviously has a lot of experience with AAC. Um, I left the schools in 2021 to open my private practice in Texas, uh, One Voice Speech Therapy Services uh, in Fort Worth. Your podcast provides inspiration and encouragement for me to never give up on my people. The a my AAC clients are 26, 30, and 31, which I love, Chris. I love that you know we're talking about older individuals with AAC, which I think just reiterates the idea it's never too late to get started using AAC and teaching language with AAC. Um, so I really appreciate that. Uh, they only have had limited experience with low tech since AAC high tech was never considered for them. Since I began seeing them their families are learning how to interact with their adult children using AAC. We're conducting research each time I see them. I've learned that one is a Gestalt language processor. The more we introduce words and phrases, the more he begins to verbalize, thus reinforcing the research that's been out there for years. We still have a lot of work to do, but small successes are celebrated each week as I review session notes from first meeting him to his current progress. I'd love to know more about Gestalt language processing and working with adult AAC users new to technology. This is a population of people who are truly left behind. I believe they will continue to learn and progress with language growth in spite of their learned behaviors used to communicate. Thank you so much for your daily knowledge and encouragement. What a nice review, Chris. Yeah, I love those details. I mean, that's someone spent some time there. And I love that they shared that sort of that that's their experience with us and and uh, um, and and the growth that we've seen in there in the in the and the growth we've seen with the language with those students. Fantastic. Love it, love it, love it. Thank you guys so much for posting those reviews. If you haven't left a review and you listen to this podcast and love it, please go to iTunes, click on ratings and reviews and send us a message. We love reading them. I love getting them. I smile every time. I know, Chris, you do too. Getting those reviews really makes our day and it really helps know that there's actually people out there listening and that it's making a difference. So thank you for taking the time to do that. 
Chris, what is our interview today? This episode is an interview with Dr. Meredith Gooseman, who we met over at the ASHA conference back in 2021. Uh, in fact, I ran into her three separate times, and it was like, you know, hey, we got to get together and talk. So we did. We got together and recorded this interview uh, together, all three of us. So this is the first part of a two-part episode with Dr. Meredith Gooseman. Hey there! If you love listening to this podcast, we would be so, so grateful for your support to keep it going. By becoming a Patreon member, you can not only help us cover the cost of this podcast, but you can get some really great bonus content as well. We post video tutorials, behind-the-scenes recordings, and bonus segments from our interviews. We would love for you to join us by going to patreon.com slash talkingwithtech. Welcome to the Talking With Tech podcast. My name is Chris Bouguet, and I'm here, as always, with Rachel Mado. And Rachel, we have a special guest today. This is Meredith Gooseman. Meredith, how's it going? It's going well. Thanks so much for having me. So, Meredith, this uh, is your first time on the podcast, but it's not the first time you've been referenced on the podcast. Um, the quick history here and story is that um, how I first met you was that I went to your session at ASHA. So can you tell us a little bit about your and I came back and we talked all about it on the podcast. So can you tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do and what your session was about at ASHA? Yes, absolutely. So I'm Meredith Guzman. I'm a speech language pathologist and a AAC clinical researcher. I finished my PhD in the fall. So I'm brand new into the um, post PhD life. My area of interest and focus is on family-centered AAC services. So I'm really interested in how we can better serve not only our clients, but the families in which they are embedded. And my session at ASHA focused on um, a intervention that had a pretty intense um, dosage. So I, it, we kind of referred to it shorthand as a camp. And we looked at some outcomes after that camp and to see if there were any changes for pediatric AAC users. And so this was the sort of surprise twist because I know coming to the session, I was like, well, of course the outcomes are going to be good, right? I mean, I've, uh, we've interviewed people that have, that do camps, you know, and uh, it's always a positive experience. I've looked into starting one, my own, in my own neck of the woods. And then that's when the twist happened. Do you want to share the results? Absolutely. So just a little bit of background information. If we look at the literature, pretty much everything speaks to camps and um, these intensive dosage treatment plans as pretty successful. But the problem and where our evidence base falls short is most of the, those outcomes are from someone's perspective. So most often they're from a parent or a caregiver perspective. So those parents are saying, yeah, after this camp, after four weeks, my son seems more confident or he's using his A to AAC modality more frequently. 
So when we implemented um, this intervention, it was over four weeks, twice a week. So it totaled in nine sessions. Um, We had to skip 4th of July. After the intervention was all said and done, we had absolutely no measurable change for our AAC users. And when you say no measurable change, you mean from like a language perspective or do you mean like, or, or anything else? Definitely a language perspective. So we measured, um, we, we had each caregiver select two prioritized language functions that, that they wanted to target during that intervention. So knowing it was short and sweet, we we had caregivers pick two language functions, whether it be greeting or commenting, asking questions, um, requesting, terminating, and so on. They pick two that would be the most meaningful and impactful for their family and for their child. And after the nine sessions, we measured to see in the absence of practice and in the absence of prompting, how would those children use their different AAC modalities to communicate those two prioritized language functions? I have a question. So, um, cause I'm really like intrigued by this, this research, um, was the pragmatic function or the language function, was that something the student had already demonstrated and you were expanding on? Or these are two brand new, like child's really just using greetings and requesting, we're gonna focus on protesting and answering questions. Both. So it was on kind of a case by case basis. Some families wanted to prioritize brand new skills, whereas other families wanted to prioritize building on skills that had already been established. Okay, that makes more sense. Um, interesting. So I, I'm really, I'm really interested because it, you know, I think that we always think more is better more intensive is better. Like that's just like a common thing that I think we, we run into, especially in like, I sit in IEP meetings and parents are always like, we need more speech therapy. We need more. And I'm like, more is not always better, everybody. Um, and I feel like that's what we think about when we think about intervention, you know, specific to our AAC learners. And it sounds like that's not necessarily the case, um, at least based on, you know, the, the study that you did. I think that in addition to the intensity and the frequency of therapy, we also need to think about what that therapy consists of. So not necessarily just the amount, but what is happening during therapy. And then also the big question that I was left with at the end of this is what are we measuring? Were we measuring the right thing? If as a result of the intervention, nothing changed. And I will add the caveat that through um, the data points collected for the research, there was no change. But the student clinicians, the graduate student clinicians who were implementing this therapy, their data, which was in the context of practice and in the context of um, a prompting hierarchy, all of the students met their goals. So it was such a contradictory um, or a contradiction between those two pieces of data that didn't align. 
So let me ask what what actually did happen in those nine sessions? What did it? What did, what is one session? What's the structure of one session? What did that look like? So each session um, could be categorized into one of two groups, either the graduate student clinicians focused on strictly modeling, just flooding with models across communication partners, across different scenarios, but um, constantly and really explicitly focused on models for whatever that child's prioritized language function is. And then the other half of the sessions were focused on in addition to the modeling. So the modeling was never removed using a prompting hierarchy to kind of scaffold the skills um, to see that with a least to most prompting hierarchy, if the student would use that language function in a kind of structured, relatively structured um, communication opportunity. And I say structured, but it wasn't drill or anything. It was like a cooking activity or play or something like that. Did you find a difference between the two groups? So everyone participated in those two types of sessions. So it actually was Everyone had a chunk of modeling, then they had a chunk of the um, prompting hierarchy, and those all focused on their first language function. And then it repeated on their second language function. So they had a couple sessions on modeling and then a couple sessions with the least to most prompting hierarchy. Oh, boy. So, so I guess we cancel all camps from now on. Now, what, what I'm, of course I'm joking, right? Um, uh, we had a, what I, one of the things I absolutely loved about your session at ASHA is that you sort of left it there, what you just explained. And then the room sort of erupted in conversation about, well, how do we, where do we go from here? Like they, uh, the, what's the analysis? So like uh, in a research study, the, the sort of the final part, the conclusion, there's an analysis and next steps, right? You sort of left that out for us to kind of talk about, right? And I um, found that part really uh, engaging. And I found a, a lot of the parts that uh, what people were sharing in the room where, well, we know least to most prompting works. Like there, when we say we know that, there's lots of evidence and research that already suggests that that works. So what happened here? Um, and the same thing with modeling, aided language stimulation. We know that's a that, that intervention when done well and with fidelity works, right? So what, what do we, and what do you think are some of the takeaways from that? I feel like I'm left with more questions than answers, which... I don't think is a bad place to be. Um, and I think sometimes when we encounter a research article, there's that line at the end that says more research is needed. And we kind of breeze right through it. But this was such a great example for me firsthand. Like what happened with this therapy protocol is that line. More research is needed. So it left me with a lot of questions like, well, how long do we need to provide modeling and appropriate prompting? And of course, as clinicians, we know that answer is we're playing the long game. We have a responsibility to provide appropriate models and scaffolding for success for a really long time. But I think for new AAC stakeholders, 
some might approach modeling like, wow, 18 hours of modeling seems like enough. But this showed that 18 hours wasn't enough. Nothing changed. So I think some of the questions I'm left with are things like how long and how much and what are we measuring And are we doing an appropriate job inviting families to be as involved as they should be? Because in this intervention, they picked the language functions. um, And at the end of the session, the graduate students would go over how their child did. And I did a lot of teaching about some AAC principles and how to model at home, but they didn't have hands-on opportunities. And I think those questions really leave us with gaps in kind of a traditional service delivery model. So that's exactly what I was thinking about because I, so I actually have an intensive um, model of service that I offer in my practice, but it's not intensive with the student, it's intensive with the communication partners. Mm -hmm. And so my next question was going to be, you know, what level of participation did communication partners have? Um, You know, I think that this is a really good this is a really good study because I think it emulates oftentimes what kids are getting when they're getting speech therapy, they're going somewhere and it's a clinician working one-on-one with them. And afterwards they're like, they did great practice open at home, you know? And so Mm -hmm. I think in that way, it's really valid, right? Because it's like, that's what most kids are getting, but I'd be really curious to figure out, you know, would an intensive approach work because I've seen that in my practice. I mean, it's unbelievable when you take an intensive approach to training communication partners, what can happen? Um, Because all of a sudden, maybe a child who was seeing, you know, 20 minutes of modeling a day is now seeing six hours of modeling a day, or, you know, now, you know, a communication partner understands how to effectively implement a prompting hierarchy um, and scaffold that learning. So I'd be really curious to see you know, if you had more calculated measures around communication partner training, like how that would impact the intensive model. Absolutely. And I would venture a guess that data would look completely different if we, if kind of the client in that case were the communication partner versus the AAC user. Mm-hmm. And thinking back to what the literature says, so much of it is focused on these caregiver perceptions. And those perceptions not only go for um, their child, but it also relates to themselves. So in after communication partner training, they too reflect report feelings of more confidence and more ability to model, or maybe just more time that they grab a aided AEC modality. And when that's the case, when caregivers feel more confident, that's going to pave the way for downstream outcomes for our AAC users. So this is something that uh, the the topic that we're talking about here is something that Rachel and I have speculated about for a while now. Um, We do a talk on coaching. We've talked about coaching on the podcast a lot. We speculated that, hey, maybe this, the pandemic will be the the, the catalyst for more people coaching communication partners. Um, But uh, 
maybe that hasn't happened, right? Because that's what I'm feeling that the three of us are landing on is that what if we spent more time working on communication partners and less time working on the person doing uh, the person who who who's uh, is using the communication device? Is that a fair statement? I think so, but I'm not confident enough to make a blanket statement. I think it's probably, again, so different based on what a communication partner is able to bring to the table. I think our efforts during the pandemic have been um, more AAC specialists and people who do a lot of AAC during their kind of daily um, work have had more awareness of the need for communication partner training, but then also we're conflicted and we have the added complexities of the fact that a pandemic has been going on. So in addition to us trying to deliver all of this coaching and communication partner training, at the same time, those same communication partners are managing way less support and um, kids are at home. They're not going to school and they may have children with um, medical complexities and fragility. So I think our efforts um, have kind of been mitigated a little bit by the context which got us there in the first place. That's that makes a lot of sense, right? I mean, there's a lot more stressors and a lot less time um, than in uh, than before, maybe. Um, and of course, everyone is different, and everyone has different um, uh, circumstances in their environment that they're that they're living in and that they're working in. Um, so it's yeah, you're right. It's like hard to make a kind of a blanket statement about that. But in general, would we say coaching? We need more communication partner uh, training, even if it didn't happen during the pandemic the way we thought it might. Um, that would probably be a good thing. Is that fair? Fair statement. I think so. I think considering the whole picture of an AAC user, we can't kind of pluck an AAC user out of the environment in which they live and say, okay, you're going to work in this speech bubble and we're going to work on these things. And then I'm going to send you on your way and change is going to happen. When we deliver quality AAC services, we consider all of those factors. We're considering the kind of the environment and the ecosystem in which they live. And that requires coaching because the the other people in their environment are going to be players in this game. And they also are have a investment in um, working on communication with their AAC user. So it's interesting that you brought up the uh, the idea of um, AAC specialists and how they were spending their time, even that 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 title AAC specialist, because that brings us sort of to part B. Is it all right if I transition us to kind of the second part of our talk that we were going to chat about today? Does that sound, Rachel? Are you good with that? Let's do it. All right. So the second part of this is, is that uh, Rachel and I, together with Asha, and we were sitting in the back of this room because we had decided to go to the session together, and we were kind of hanging out in the back. And the session was all about the AAC certification. So Rachel, do you want to explain what the AAC certification is for people who are like, wait, what's that? Yes. So this is basically going to be some type of assessment, I believe. Um, and 
payment <laughs> that you have to pay and also take a test and demonstrate, you know, yourself as it, I'll put this in air quotes, AAC specialist. So right now there's no formal certification. Um, you know, people are just like, oh, I'm an AAC specialist. Um, so the idea is let's have some type of uh, way to certify um, that someone who says they're an AAC specialist is indeed an AAC specialist. Um, and so this has been happening for the last couple of years now. We had um, a few episodes, actually, Chris, on this. We had um, an episode that we did with a speech science podcast with Matt Hott. Um, we also had Katya Hill, um, who is a leader in this kind of movement, talk all about what that looked like. Now, there might be a little outdated at this point because it was a few years ago where we had Katya on. But um, essentially, Chris and I decided to go to this session at ASHA because it was an update. Like, what is happening with this specialty certification for AAC? And so we're sitting in the back of the room and someone started asking questions towards the end. There wasn't a lot of opportunity to interact in this session. It was a lot of, here's the update. And then, okay, we've got a few minutes at the end for questions. And the person asking the questions was a couple rows ahead of us. And we we're kind of craning our neck. Who's asking those questions? Who is that? And we got up to go talk to this person and guess who it was? It was me. <laughs> yeah. So Meredith, can you give us your, what your thoughts were about that session or the certification in general? What are your thoughts? So in regards to the session, I was very surprised. I've gone to a couple different sessions at different conferences related to the new AAC specialty certification. And the, the sessions I've previously gone to, um, I would characterize the audience or the vocal members of the audience as predominantly worried. Um, and having some questions and concerns about the long-term effects of the uh, introduction of a specialty certification. And at ASHA, that was not the case. The vocal members of the audience were so excited and um, really couldn't wait to get started. And I was shocked by that difference. It We had really jumped um, to the polar opposite end of the um, kind of emotional spectrum. So I, too, share concerns over the impact of the AAC specialty certification. Speaking from my research experience as someone who has a lot of investment in family-centered services, um, I have heard time and time again from caregivers that they really are the experts in their child. No one knows their child better than them. And I believe that wholeheartedly. Caregivers know the special things about their kids. Like when they wake up from their nap, they have goldfish and orange juice. They know those special little nuances. And as a service provider, I don't know that. I don't know the special things about their child, even with the longest relationship and the most professional rapport. And I think by putting a name on it, that there is an AAC specialist, we kind of are forcing our way into some of the um, 
specialty roles or like the leader of the AAC team. The leader of the AAC team should be the AAC user and the caregiver of the AAC user if they're a child. I think by adding this specialist, we're kind of stepping away from what we know to be the gold standard, which is not an expert-based model. It's a model where we value the input and the expertise of every single person who comes to the table, including the caregiver and the AAC user. In addition, I think there are also some other really tangible concerns like the impact of um, funding AAC systems that are also concerning. So I think on both the theoretical and kind of evidence-based front, I have worries as well as the tangible and financial impact down, down the road. So I'm going to come out on a limb here and say that I share those worries. I wasn't in the uh, sessions that you were talking about at other um, at other conferences, but the buzz certainly extended to me. Like, oh, Chris, we wish you were here. You should hear this. There was um, like people in tears in those sessions, worried about um, the exclusionary effects that this certification might have. Well, I'd say likely to have. I'll go out on that uh, and, and say, yeah, that that um, there are people who have been working to build a culture of inclusivity um, around le- learning language with AAC. And by putting the label of an AAC specialist or someone who's certified might immediately disregard all that work uh, and say that, well, these others, and I think the people who are, would be promoting the uh, certification would say, no, 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 it's not going to do that. But that's the worry that now the speech therapist that does not have the certification would be like, well, that's not me. I mean, I think you got to go find somebody else that has the certification. That's not really uh, something that I'm certified in. Um, or a teacher might say, you know, I've been working for five years on using AAC. I don't have the certification, but someone who passes a test uh, suddenly has a certification and they, I'll put it, I'll put it in, my, in air quotes, knows more than I do, you know, or a parent for that matter, right? I mean, uh, some of our most um, uh, influential parents in AAC that have seen the greatest change have been ones who've said, yes, yeah, speech therapists, you you failed. I had to go and do it myself. So um, would we say to the, meaning the, the, the occupation of speech therapy, not a one individual person ha- has failed. So, um, so I share those concerns and I, and I'll go on, but I'll just take a second there to say, Rachel, what are your thoughts? I agree. <laughs> I agree. I think that we don't need another reason for team members that are supporting an AAC learner to say like, oh, I don't do that. <laughs> oh, like, I don't know. Right. Because we, we, we create this expert mindset that what I do as an AAC specialist is different somehow than what the speech language pathologist does in their sessions or what the teacher does to support a student or what a paraprofessional does to support an AAC learner. And so my fear is that you know, we just don't need anything else coming up against us trying to share the notion that AAC is for all and it's everyone's responsibility. So many times I've been in an IEP meeting where everyone, they start talking about AAC and like, everyone just looks at me like, okay, Rachel, like this is you. And what I do when that happens is 
I, I put the ball back on everybody else because I don't want a team where everyone looks to me like I have all the answers um, because that's not the, the nature of building capacity within teams because the reality is there's not enough AAC specialists out there. Even you know now we have issues with clinicians feeling confident enough to start trialing AAC while a child's sitting on a wait list uh, or to start using it in their sessions before they get the green light from an AAC specialist to say, yes, the system makes sense. You know, so many of the kids that come to me in my practice, they are, they've been either denied access to AAC um, by some AAC specialist who said that they didn't have enough cognitive skills. I literally just read this report yesterday. It was like the child doesn't have enough cognitive skills to show that they could use a high-tech speech generating device. So it's like they come to me and it's, it's super frustrating to me um, when I see a report like that, but the reality is there's so many kids in need of these services and in need of people saying, okay, I'm not an AAC specialist, but I know enough from listening to this podcast and doing this continuing education course and, you know, enough to, to start because so many kids are just waiting to get started because of this fear that I'm not an AAC specialist. I don't know. Um, and I'm, directly going kind of against that in the work that I do, you know, trying to make, to empower all, all that, that you can do AAC. Here's what you need to know. You need to start modeling on an AAC system, um, you know, robust language systems, you know, all these things that we're teaching. It's just like, if we, we now have to put that behind, um, you know, a wall where the only people that are allowed to recommend systems and do this work have to have a specialty certification. It just feels counterintuitive to really expanding opportunities for all of our AAC learners and some who don't even have access to AAC uh, getting access to that AAC. So I just feel a little frustrated at this idea um, of creating an expert model because so many of us are working in the field trying to dismantle that outdated, antiquated framework. <laughs>